we have to do so much reclamation from colonization to be able to really get into the body and into the earth. We really have to do it over years, I think, because, I mean, the way we're touched when we're babies begins the disembodiment experience. In this episode, expect brain science with a side of profanity. Yep, in discussing the resonance of swear words, we use several of them. But the main course is a frank discussion of brain circuits, unconscious contracts, resonant mothering, the chemical strategy of addiction, and challenges of feeling like you belong to Earth. This episode may make you want to hug your mom, empower your disgust circuit, and say no more often, among so many other things. Hey folks, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast, a forum to learn about and liberate the brilliance of your body and ultimately to expand the meaning and experience of intelligence. Join me, Ali Mazay, and other body masters to explore pioneering and varied perspectives on what it means and feels like to be embodied. So many people feel disconnected from their bodies due to emotional or physical pain or even conditioning and lack of education. Others feel quite at home in their bodies yet want to learn to have more pleasure, awareness, and access to the body's guidance. This podcast is for everybody. Each one of my trailblazing guests has studied their own bodies and others' bodies for decades and will share their expertise and unique mission, how to thrive as a body. So join us and reclaim your body's brilliance. My next guest, Sarah Payton, author, international constellations facilitator, certified trainer of nonviolent communication and neuroscience educator, integrates constellations, brain science, and the use of resonant language to heal trauma. She works with audiences internationally to create a compassionate understanding of the effects of relational trauma on the brain and teaches people how words change and heal us. Sarah speaks about both the personal and the systemic forces that lead to traumatization, including racism, patriarchy, gender oppression, capitalism, and colonialism. Sarah is a sought-after expert who brings neuroscience expertise to conversations about power including how human brains respond to power differentials and microaggressions, the social trauma that can result, and how to use resonant healing to support people in restoring dignity and reclaiming their full power. I met Sarah many years ago when we were littermates in Jane Peterson's Constellations training, and we took to each other immediately. I've always admired and been super fond of Sarah. She's a lovely person, as you'll see and has just a tremendously large and intelligent heart. We're going to learn so much about the brain because she's got quite a different perspective on it that brings the heart and human relationship into our understanding of neuroscience in a way that I've never heard it from anybody else. So you're in for a treat. Sarah Payton, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast. Hello! We're doing it! We are. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see you. So do you feel ready to answer some questions? I'm totally ready. I'm ready to go. Well, I was just looking at your website and being reminded that you grew up in Alaska. And I wanted to ask you about how did that influence your sense of being a body, a white body, living in such a rural and wild perhaps way. We lived sustainably, but we were in Fairbanks, Alaska. We lived in the outskirts of Fairbanks, but we lived in the forest and we didn't have to go to school if it was 60 below, but we did have to go to school if it was 59 below. (laughs) We didn't have to go outside at recess if it was 20 below, but we did have to go outside if it was 19 below. (laughs) So it was kind of an odd relationship with arbitrary measurements. I just miss it so much. There's something so. Do you? Yeah. But, you know, there's this new word, solastalgia. I think I'm saying it right, which is a new word that was coined to say, you know, because of climate crisis, you can't go home in the same way. You know, your childhood home is not necessarily the home that you grew up in. And that's very true for my area. It's one of the things that stops me from 
100% committing to returning because the forest is changing. The trees are dying from the loss of the permafrost layer. And there's a sadness, there's a skeletal quality to the forest that's pain, really painful. I bet. And I imagine, too, you'd want to keep your sense of vivid nostalgia and not have it replaced in any way. Does that affect you? I feel that way with my parents' home, for example, in San oh, Francisco. Yeah. yeah, in some ways. I've had that feeling about places. More, it's the, the memories of childhood are very strong and they don't change with the changing environment, but there's just so much grief. So how did growing up in such a, even if you were living in an urban environment, just the climate alone was quite rugged, yeah. how did that influence and inform yourself as a body being then? And even still now, even though you don't live in that environment anymore and decades have gone by. When I was growing up there, it was just what was. So it was home. And you had mentioned being a white body in that environment. And when I was very little, before the, I was five years old, my father said to me, I said, I'm an Alaskan native. I was born here. He said, no, you're not an Alaskan native. The Alaskan natives are the people who are indigenous to this place. We don't get to be native here, which is a very young to begin to, you know, perceive that. And it created a sense of disconnection from the land that still persists. And I think that's an interesting piece of the North American experience is not just being a white body different from indigenous bodies, but having the collective responsibility for genocide. It's such a disruptor in terms of, I've been looking at things connected with climate anxiety and these new words and ideas and nuances about emotions that are coming out of climate anxiety. And I'm thinking about how these very words can also describe the experience of trying to move into understanding and taking responsibility for and collective responsibility, collective trauma, collective harm that's been done. and the. Experience of also sort of like being both a line and a point. You know, in physics, you can be a line, but you can be a point on the line. It's sort of like that, you know, with collective responsibility. So I think that people become overwhelmed because there are, is no real language for it. There's no real language that lets people have a sense of, yes, I'm the line, but I'm also a point, you know. My own personal experience is not of taking the land from others, but my line experience is, so this is what I've been thinking about. Yeah. So when you were five years old in this tiny point at the center of your own universe, it sounds like there was already this perhaps conflict or skirmish. I don't know. I can imagine between am I a point or am I a line? That seems like so, so young, as you were saying, to yeah. have to navigate this discrepancy or potential discrepancy, if not conflict between those two. Yeah. And it was more like I didn't get to be part of the line that I wanted to be. Like mm -hmm. I didn't be part of the line that was truly connected to the land, which then, you know, has such interesting implications for our care for the earth, because in order to be a good steward for the earth, you have to feel like you belong to it. So how do we all negotiate this is a real interesting question for me. Do you feel like you belong to the earth? As a point, I feel that I belong to the earth. Like I have a huge sense of belonging. But as a line, I have a feeling of a sort of disconnection. It might be a little bit of disaffection. There's a sense of, you know, something amiss with the line. In, in terms of perhaps also, you know, I mean, what's in my mind is migration. The leaving of the birth homes. Half my people come from Poland and half my people came to North America from the British Isles coming from famine. So what happens for you with this question? That displacement is really strong, it sounds like, in your lineage and in your current thinking. What happens for me, I feel still living in foreign lands most of the time, profoundly Californian. I've always really identified proudly with being San Franciscan because I'm a native San Franciscan. And then I lived in Los Angeles for many years, but I've always, I mean, you can't take the San Franciscan out of the person, you know, uh. and it very, very much influenced how I see the world because of its liberal bent and my parents choosing it coming from the East Coast. But now living in foreign lands, 
In fact, I was just thinking about it this morning, Sarah. I've always felt somewhat alien. I've always felt somewhat foreign, not just to any given country I spend time in, but probably to the planet. So it's a hard one for me to answer, even though I feel deeply committed to this planet and deeply in love with it and horrified by what's happening with it. I don't necessarily feel of it, but I definitely feel an imperative to do my best to help it and try to protect it, which in its own roundabout way is why I wanted to make this podcast. Because I imagine you would agree, I think the body, and as my last guest, Philip Shepard, talked about, you know, the feminine kind of energetic experience or symbolic representation or actual flesh-based, he calls it the feminine end of the spectrum of that pelvic floor grounded connectedness to earth, I feel like is absolutely crucial for us to reclaim, reconnect with, re-experience, re-identify as in order to find first the love and the passion and the purpose to protect this place, but also hopefully some solutions and capacity to actually do so. I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm. Are you feeling discouraged or and or optimistic about the condition of the world right now and how it seems to be headed? <laughs> well, there's a part of me that wants 2,000 years <laughs> to, to like... Evaporate? No, no. That would be wonderful too. But to have 2,000 years of carbon... <laughs> uh -oh. Carbon use evaporate. No, I was thinking of the way that resonance changes people's brains. I mean, I have so many people who come and begin to study the resonant language that I teach and then write to me, you've changed our family. We're speaking to our children differently. And that's such a joyful message to receive because the disconnection feels so embedded and so painfully apparent in the way that people take care of their children. So having the relationship with children begin to change, is I just love to see what humanity would do if that were the foundation. If a resonant approach to children were the foundation of everything, I would just have this really huge wondering because, I mean, once you start being resonant with your children, it's not a far step to be resonant with everybody's children, and it's not a far step to begin to be resonant with the earth itself. I've been thinking about how, because I am myself a mother and struggle with the archetype, I've been thinking about how this concept of Mother Earth is really a harmful concept that we have this idea of mothers as giving, 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 giving. We don't see them as people. We have this idea of the planet as giving, 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 giving. I don't see the planet as a person. <laughs> like, we're in a relationship with a person. We're not in a relationship with a mother. <laughs> Who also needs to be given to. Yes. That's such an interesting point for me of wondering of like, what happens if everything is changed? <laughs> Would it be enough? If everything were changed, or would we still be pillaging and, you know, because there's something foundationally uh, awry with the labor system, sort of systemically, like whoever has more money has taken from people who have nothing. And so the design is pretty bad. Humans have definitely <laughs> co-created a system that does not work for most people. Well, there's certainly a lot of speculation that there was quite a bit of respect with children in indigenous cultures. That industrialized? Pre-contact. But then, you know, with the loss of 80 to 90 percent of the indigenous population with contact, then there's this enormous collective trauma that enters that culture. And then the resonance doesn't get to persist in North America at any rate. Just that enormous loss. So. I have no sense that in any industrialized world that a resonant response to children has persisted. It's just little islands of people trying to swim against the culture who create a different experience for their children. I mean, it's very hard because not only for myself, for example, I mean, I stumbled across nonviolent communication. And the reason that it was so compelling for me was because it promised something different with my kids. But not only did I have a cultural imprint that was taking me away from my kids, but I had trauma imprints were taking me away from my kids. So I was up against 
nonverbal trauma because my mom had dissociative identity disorder. And so my early childhood was real fractured in many ways. And that fracturing then came right to the surface in the nonverbal connection with my baby. So, um, can you give an example of that? So, one of the ways I see that through line coming through most profoundly is in the area of play. So, when my brother and I would start to be really goofy and make my mom laugh, she would start to cry like her heart was breaking. She couldn't sustain joy. And joyful innocence was a target for her. Do you mean trigger or trauma even? Or what do you mean by target? Well, it would, she couldn't bear really for play to happen, except for in certain situations. If there was any play happening, it had to be turned into work. Yeah. So that's what I mean by target. It would stimulate for her a response to try to make it stop. And this is the most common flashpoint for domestic violence and for domestic violence between partners and domestic violence with children is expressions of joy. Yeah. So my mom would cry. You know, it was a very peculiar thing because well, I wanted to make my mom laugh. I wanted her to be happy, but then she would cry and, you know, that wasn't going well. And so then when I was a mom, I remember when I was trying to play with my child, predatory aggression would come out instead of gentle play. He would be scared of me instead of having an experience of joyful play with his mom. There are a number of things that happen in disorganized attachment. One of the things that happens is that the parent looms in thinking it's play. And that stimulates a terror response in a child when there's unexpected looming. I mean, there are these very small nonverbal patterns that create the larger expressions of disorganized attachment and traumatic attachment in our world with going on to drug addiction and all kinds of violence and all kinds of things. But another really tiny nonverbal pattern that was discovered by Beatrice Beebe, who is a researcher into facial expressions between moms and babies, she discovered that a hallmark, a foundation stone of disorganized attachment was that the child would express sadness and the mom would be surprised or she would smile. Such a small thing, but it fractures a child's sense of self. The way that we're made is that we express an emotion and the person who's taking care of us is, when we're babies gives us a sense of like, yeah, heck yeah, of course that emotion makes sense. So if you've got somebody whose nervous system is disrupted by trauma, as my mother's was, and then as mine was by second generation trauma, then you get this persistence of these patterns. So then I was puzzled by my child's, I was even more than sadness, I was pretty okay with sadness. I was totally puzzled by terror. Well, my mother had been completely terrifying. I had to figure out how to become inured to that, how to become inert in the presence of things that were terrifying. I had closed, it's like I had taken that bridge down when I was a little kid. So then I couldn't connect with my child, which has so many implications. I was scaring him, but I didn't know it. By the way, since a lot of people won't be able to see you when you talked about looming, you kind of lurched forward, you leaned forward, and it looked and felt kind of menacing. Yeah, exactly. And then I remember this time I was watching Pat Ogden video or someone who was making a video based on Pat Ogden's work. And it was a parent being with a child when the child was having an emotional experience. And it went on and on and on. And I was so uncomfortable, I had to stop the video and cry. It's hard to talk about because it's about whether or not our nervous system can stay with our child. And it's not in the area of language. It gets reflected later in the area of language. But you have two and a half years before your child really starts to talk very much where it's nervous system to nervous system. And when your nervous system is fractured, then the connection with the child is fractured. So as I discovered nonviolent communication, which was when my child was about seven or something like that, then I started to repair. He's 25. I think it's taken these 15 years. We're finally at a place where I think, fingers crossed, that things are good. What you're describing, the way I'm understanding it, imagining it, kind of feeling it, is that there's not a congruency between mother and child because there's not a congruency between self to self. I know you work a lot with brain circuits, and I definitely want to ask you that, but it sounds like there's just contradictions between one 
aspect of self in another, but in a very body-based kind of way. And I don't know if that's how you then really got attracted to and developed the work with brain circuits. But I'd love for you to talk about that as well as how the brain is the body and the body is the brain. This isn't, so many of us have such a strong conception of the brain just being this drab stuff inside the skull when really it's infuses the whole body and the whole being. So what about brain circuits and how are those implicated in this, again, what I would call lack of congruency and therefore rapport in relational modeling? Yeah. There was a really wonderful researcher named Yakupangsip, who was of Estonian descent and worked in the United States. And he discovered that animals had different pathways in their brains that different emotions traveled on. So if you're angry, the energy and information in your brain is traveling in a different place in your brain, sort of like the London Underground, you know? Are they orange and green? Is that what they call them? Oh, I don't remember. I remember there were different colors. But you're on a particular railroad line when you're angry. You're on a different railroad line when you're sad. You're on a different railroad line when you're afraid. You're on a different railroad line when you're playing. So my experience of being in disorganized attachment with my mom was that I had to completely shut down the terror, the fear line. And the play line also needed really to be shut down because... It was too dangerous, you know. People fell apart if you moved into play, into real play. So these lines aren't metaphorical. You're talking about an actual physiological neuro network or neuro pathways, right? Yeah, and each of them run with different fuel. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like the anger pathway would have diesel and the play pathway would have gasoline and the Sadness pathway would have biodiesel. You know, I mean, it's all different. And then there sure, were must have sugar <laughs> as a fuel. Is there correlation with the meridian systems at all in Eastern medicine with these circuits or not? That's such a great question. There is definitely a correlation between the chakras and the vagus nerve, but I don't know enough about acupuncture mm-hmm. and meridians to really get what kinds of correlations could be made. But I do have a sense that acupuncture is definitely trying to work with, it's a different way of approaching working with people's contracts, with unconscious contracts that keep them bound and stop chi from moving, which would of course be connected with the circuits and the way that, you know, as they become more free, then your chi moves more fully through your entire body. All right, well, we're going to get into contracts in just a bit. So come back to circuits and okay. telling us about brain circuits okay. and the different circuits there are and how you work with them. So each of these different fuels are different neurotransmitters. So the seeking circuit is fueled by dopamine and the care circuit is fueled by oxytocin and endogenous opioids. And the play circuit is fueled by the endocannabinoid system. That's the brain's own internal system that uses the same neurochemicals that are in marijuana, in cannabis. So all of our addictions are connected to the circuits. And so heroin or fentanyl addiction, an opiate addiction, is connected to the panic grief circuit and the care circuit. And many people will describe the first time they use heroin that it's like being enfolded in a perfect mother's warm embrace. And when we use substances and become addicted to substances, they're telling us which of our circuits are impacted. So I mean, we're living in a world where, because there is so little resonance, marijuana has become extremely important because it's providing an access to play. And the whole endocannabinoid system is of great importance for homeostasis and for balancing the way that our body feels, you know, when we have a feeling of bodily well-being, our endocannabinoid system is working very well. Is there a particular cost, though, to stimulating or nourishing that system when it's with a drug, as opposed to one's own natural biochemistry? Is there a cost? Of course there is. And at the same time, it might be the only way that somebody can get things balanced and working. It's almost like if we are bodies that are earth bodies, 
And if the earth is a network very similar to us, it's almost like with addiction, we're trying to work with the earth and what the earth brings us in order to, you know, it's like we're turning to a larger system in order to find balance. As our circuits, which yeah, punks have called systems, but I like the word circuits, as our circuits become more balanced, both through resonance and, of course, through constellation work, then it's a very complex development of expanding consciousness and expanding participation between this physical body and the Earth's physical body. It's like a complex evolution that cannot be predicted as people do healing work. One example, I think, is the cello behind me. So I started doing this work when I was about 40. And when I was 50 years old, I thought, just really want to leave my family, move to Europe and take up the cello. (laughs) I was just obsessing about this. And then one day I thought, oh, I don't have to leave my family. I don't have to move to Europe. I can just pick up a cello, for God's sake. (laughs) And what circuit did that nourish? Well, there's this other interesting thing that happens with an emotion like awe, which animals are perhaps less likely to feel. There is a wonderful story in one of, I think, Frank DeWall's books about the chimpanzee who would climb to the top of a hill and watch the sunset. Yeah, I was just thinking that I have a picture of my dog sitting and watching a magnificent Scottish yes. sunset, and it sure looks like awe. Yeah, exactly. But it's cord- awe tends to be considered to be cortical rather than these yakpunksep systems run through the limbic system. So I don't know where awe connects to those systems, but I have a sense it's probably the play circuit because once you get away from competition in play, then all of a sudden there's this strong sense of discovery and innovation and exploration. But I love Baroque music and Baroque music is very structured and structure takes us towards dopamine too. So playing the cello for 10 years, there's little experiences of awe. There's my love of Baroque music and then there's daily practice and daily study, which is all dopamine fuel. So there's this seeking circuit as a part of this, but there's also like a reaching with the seeking circuit. And that's what happens as we heal. We begin to use the seeking circuit to reach for the other circuits. The seeking circuit is, of course, everybody's heard of dopamine in the context of addiction. So dopamine is trying to solve all of our problems. And so when it's reaching for an addiction, it's sort of trying to manage things and create homeostasis at a very basic level. But once we start to give the brain and the body, the body-brain support, then the brain begins to reach beyond that, you know, reaches for the cello or it decides it wants to start baking or it decides it wants to learn Korean and gets really excited by K-pop, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen that are not at all predictable. We never know what's going to happen when a particular brain begins to heal. That's part of the magic of doing this work, of doing constellation work and of doing resonance work. Hey everyone, it's Ali, switching hats for a moment to share a bit about one of my somatic therapy offerings. Personal geometry adapted from family constellation work is a highly efficient somatic method and an incredible tool for therapists, healers, and teachers of all types. Now, after years of applying personal geometry in clinical environments and private practice, I'm offering online training in this highly effective method. Personal geometry is a body-based method to quickly get to the unconscious loyalties and the body maps underlying our relationships, patterns, and addictions. By giving the body a way to speak, we can access previously hidden pivotal insights that often evade traditional therapies. Online classes in personal geometry are available on a rolling basis throughout the year, and our next cohort begins soon. So for more information on the course or to sign up, find the link in the show notes or head to www.alimezey.com slash personal-geometry-foundations. Can't wait to share this groundbreaking method with you. I love the poetry of this. Of course, cellos have long been considered these feminine forms of your just healing this circuitry that was what you've described as being so damaged by your mother and probably her mother before her, et cetera, et cetera. And you found 
it sounds like through your seeking circuit and just following your own instincts or what I would call your body brilliance towards this cello that then has helped you rebalance these circuits that again is so connected to the mother. It's just really beautiful. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to go, what the heck's going to happen? What am I going to think next? What's going to evolve? What's going to emerge? Yeah. What are alcohol and sugar both most connected to in terms alcohol of... Alcohol is multipurpose. It mm-hmm. will help with almost any circuit problem. <laughs> you wake up the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> and sugar is so connected with endogenous opioids and, and oxytocin. It's just, it's managing alarmed alumnus. It's managing the disconnection that we live in just brings tears to my eyes. The disconnection that we live in without one another, without resonance, without somebody saying, do I really understand you? I'm getting, do I really understand you? The capacity to have that warm curiosity for one another is is missing. And sugar will do it instead of people. Definitely the one I hit when I'm feeling (laughs) down. No doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so effective. Well, again, temporarily it is, but then it tends to kick into a kind of a retrograde experience for me anyway, which is mm-hmm. why I quit drugs decades ago. Was, mm-hmm. you know, because what I'll call again, the retrograde of it became greater than the positive spin that it may have been providing. I've also worked with lots of addicts and they're in the stage where it has gone way retrograde and they're spinning out of control in a backwards kind of way and it's not working for them anymore. So obviously it stops working pretty fast, at least in terms of behavior. I don't know if it's helping on the level of the brain, is it? It doesn't seem like it. Well, many people talk about what addicts are chasing is that initial Mm -hmm. experience of having the resolution. Like the first time that they had heroin, the experience of being perfectly loved. Then the brain goes, the nucleus accumbens, and the brain goes, hi, we've solved the problem. And it's not very flexible, the nucleus accumbens. Once it gets an idea, it's it's kind of stamped. And this is why I think, you know, when people are in 12-step, they say, I'm Sarah and I'm an alcoholic, is because what they're really saying is, I'm Sarah and my nucleus accumbens has claimed alcohol as the solution for my brain problems. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's fun to laugh. So I don't remember what your original question was. (laughs) Well, I was just asking about, obviously, at some point, often sooner rather than later, the benefit of the substance or the behavior becomes negative as opposed to the intended positive outcome. Yeah. I mean, part of like, for example, with methamphetamine addiction, when you do the methamphetamines, it floods your, I can't remember how much more dopamine, 14 times as much dopamine in the interstitial fluid of the brain when you do the methamphetamines. And as a response, the brain retracts. So there's little dopamine receptors that look like little mushrooms in the drawings. I don't know what they actually <laughs> look like in real life. But it's like the brain pulls those little mushrooms in because there's too much dopamine. So the brain's trying to manage it. And so then somebody had a field of 20 mushrooms and now they've only got two. So then they stop doing methamphetamines and they used to have eight before or they used to have 20, now they have two. And in a very good world where they had been fully supported as children, you know, they should have 25, you know, something. So then not only, you know, are they trying to function with a brain that was already compromised in terms of dopamine, but now they have even less. And that's at like a nine-month period. They have to be free of methamphetamines for a nine-month period before those little mushrooms even start popping back up, which makes this long period of real struggle to find meaning or movement or agency or energy in the world. So not only do we have it going retrograde, but we have the experiment with trying to solve brain problems with outside substances, creating imbalance that then takes a long time to rectify. Well, it damages the infrastructure by which we can function in any kind of healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. But we were already starting without health to begin with. I mean, we were trying to solve a real problem. So the struggle of the path of healing from addiction is also 
really complex and takes a ton of self-compassion. Let's talk about contracts. I think that's a good segue. And the initial genius that children have to create these contracts in order to stay safe or to survive their environments, and then how that, as we age, can end up also becoming a retrograde <laughs> strategy. Yeah. Cause us sabotage and struggle and suffering and all that. Yeah, so this work comes from Bert Hellinger's early verbal work where he would have people say, I will continue to do this no matter the cost to myself. And we see this continuing in Stephen Hausner's work with his book, Even If It Cost Me My Life. So this is where I started was like, okay, we've got these very interesting explicit namings that are coming from Hellinger and then from Hausner that say, oh yes, I will do this even though it's bad for me. So then I started to think about the brain and what's going on? Because I was traveling around the world teaching people about the neuroscience of self-compassion and people would be like, all well and good, Sarah, but I can't do it. I can't do it because it's not an integrity for me to have compassion for myself. I'd be like, wow, that's so interesting. What can we do about this? What's the knot that's tied inside of this person that makes it so that they can't have self-compassion or they can't be on time or they can't, you know, there's all kinds of things. And I thought, okay, what if these are the contracts that Hellinger and Hausner were pointing us towards? What if these are like little knots that the nervous system has tied for very good reasons in childhood? that then stop emergence, stop relationship, stop the entry of new information and experiences into the brain. And so I started to work with people in this way, using this contractual terminology. I swear to myself that I will do this thing, that I will not let people in, that I will not believe I can be loved, that I will not believe that I belong. I will do this in order to I believe I cannot be loved. I'll believe this in order to make sure that my heart is never broken again, for example. The contracts are, they're often meant to save us from being completely alone. How do we live in a world where no one understands us and no one can be counted on? How do we hold our nervous systems, put our nervous systems into a set place so that we can exist in a world where people will betray us. And if we make a promise to ourselves never to trust again, not to soften, to be hard, all of these things involving the full body response to being in the world, as we make these agreements with ourselves, the metaphor that works for me is of spiderweb, that we wrap ourselves in strand after strand after strand of spiderweb so that we end up like little gray spider-webbed figures moving through the world almost in a state of semi-paralysis. And that most of what we're dealing with in this post-industrial world is that everybody's in these spider-webs. And the spider-webs stop resonance. They stop warm curiosity. They stop a sense that we can touch each other and be changed by each other. As I'm talking to you, I'm remembering like lots of wonderful things from our past, you know, moments where you did body work on me and the ways that our little physical systems have touched each other and our capacity to perceive this and to let it in is so dependent on whether or not we've begun to let go of the contracts that kept us safe and allowed us to survive our childhoods. So, yes, tell me what interests you now or what you're thinking of. Well, I'm thinking of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Oh, (laughs) that's what I was thinking of. I was in the cave with the huge spiders and I think Harry Potter, there's that theme too. So I was kind of marveling at this kind of archetypal experience wrapped by these giant family of origin traumatic constructs. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking about. And I was also thinking, in a way, how discouraging it is, like how hard it is to be human. Yes. You want to cry right now. Like, I've worked so, so hard since I was a little girl, quite consciously, at trying to 
get free of that spider web thing. You know, and I feel fairly like there's just a bit of gossamer here and there left as far as I can tell. But God damn it, it's been a long road and it's been a lot of concerted, committed work, as I know it has been for you and all the people that come to work with us and probably everyone who's listening. And I'm feeling a lot of compassion (laughs) to use your common language, you know, for just humans and how difficult it is to have these brains that our species is so proud of. In a lot of ways, this brain capacity that we have hasn't done us a lot of favors, in my view. And it certainly hasn't done other species a lot of favors either. You know, I have to spend an hour a week mourning the human brain. (laughs) Why do we have to be so dependent on whether or not there's resonance in our world to be able to have effective nervous systems? Why can't we just like everybody be born a little bit more bubbly and <laughs> a little less sinkable. Oh, my God. I mean, I have to say, being around the cows and the sheep and the pigs here and all these animals that unfortunately are being raised for food, but while they're still alive, they're living pretty idyllic lives, at least when it's not winter. And the amount of affection and resonance and what is hard to not describe as loving kindness that is happening amongst themselves and the little lamb nurseries that the ewes will surround and watch over these little animals that talk about play. I mean, they're just bonkers, you know, the way they bop around and get into all kinds of mischief. And I just think humans have gotten it so wrong in so many ways. And What bothers me particularly about it is our lack of respect for these other capacities that is so robust in other species, but that we can't often recognize because we devalue those very same capacities within ourselves. Compassion, empathy, sensuality, an expansive sense of self that includes the all or at least our immediate communities. So I'd love for you to talk more about compassion and self-compassion, because of course, you know, I can say all that and go be mean to myself as soon as I get off this conversation, just as easy, (laughs) just as easy for me to be mean to myself as probably most other people. So please talk about self-kindness and how that hopefully extrapolates to more kindness in the world and to other species. Yeah. When we talk about being mean to ourselves, One of the nice starting points is understanding that what we're trying to do is we're trying to take care of ourselves, that it's the best strategy that we know to try to get our circuits to work, that berating ourselves or telling ourselves that we're not good enough is part of an unconscious contractual agreement that we have with ourselves where we have never examined the idea that maybe it would be sweeter to be warm with ourselves. And so what we do is we'll say, Sarah, you idiot, how could you do that? I mean, that's one of my internal mantras is, Sarah, you idiot, how could you do that? Then if I become bigger than that voice, and I'm holding that voice also with warmth, and I'm like, hey, voice, I wonder if you're like really exasperated and hopeless, and if you need a little acknowledgement of exhaustion and fatigue trying to take care of Sarah. Is she a little bit hard to manage? Is she she going in directions that you wish she wouldn't go in? Do you have some longings for her well-being that have never been fulfilled? (laughs) Do you look for organization and clarity? Sarah's inner voice. Do you wish for a perfect sense of social fluidity and grace? Would you like some acknowledgement that it's been impossible to get the level of social grace that you would love to have with her? (laughs) Like, you know, it's a whole different conversation once we begin to hold that voice with care. And then the experience of intrusive shame memories is also something that a lot of people deal with. And that's an after effect of trauma. It's the default mode network trying and trying and trying to resolve these moments of shame and isolation that we lived with as children or moments of terrible alarmed aloneness where we suddenly realized that there was nobody with us. 
that we were maybe in a crowd of people, but that nobody had the capacity to look at us with understanding. Or if they did, we couldn't perceive it because the internal contracts were already so strong within us, making us judge ourselves. So I kind of think that we need to resolve some of these contracts in order for the self-compassion to be able to start to flow. Because we all have a care circuit. We all have a Piccadilly line that is devoted to warmth. It could be warmth for others, but also we can use that circuit and have warmth for ourselves. So once we begin to awaken the warmth, and we can do this by letting go of circuits, we can also do this with very tiny breathing meditations, just one breath where we're just like, okay, just one breath of self-warmth, one breath of like, yeah, wherever your attention goes is a perfectly okay place for it to go. I love you no matter where your attention goes, Sarah. You do not have to be a Buddhist monk. In this moment with this breath, all you have to do is breathe and you get to do whatever you want and I will love you. You get to beat up Sarah and I would still love you. It's almost like what happens as we begin to heal is we create larger and larger and larger containers of love that start to hold more and more. So holds the self, holds a more complex sense of others, holds animals, holds the planet. I'm crying again. I don't know what keeps happening when I'm doing these episodes, these conversations. I keep wanting to just start sobbing. And it's a really interesting thing. And I think it's partially because I am dissolving some contracts or at least a contract as I'm creating this platform for us. So both relief and grief and joy all mixed together? Yeah, it's a complex experience of elation, grief, awe, fear, potential shame of, can I be, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed this word comes up, but equal to these amazing guests, you know, these amazing people that I have loved and admired in some cases for years. Am I one of you? You know, can I be part? And I say that to include the listeners, you know, can we allow ourselves to be part of this community? I hope these conversations help to, if not create, remind us of that we are a part of this cohort, these kindred beings that care about these same or similar things that are very much about love, ultimately, you know? That love that extends beyond us. And I think probably most of us, like I was just thinking when you were saying that, how some of us can have really strong care circuits when it's for others, but not for ourselves. And how that further thickens the plot about these circuits, because I know they do zigzag, you know, there can be a stopover and you can go from Piccadilly and all of a sudden you're over in some really rough part of town. And then you can get back on and hopefully come back to Piccadilly or somewhere. I don't know. So, you know, somewhere that at least is less threatening. (laughs) So I don't know. That's what I was thinking and feeling about just how complex our systems are. And at least mine is and how difficult it can be to say these things. And I love that you're talking to yourself in third person. There's wonderful research that shows that's good for us. Does it? Because is it because it sort of reparents ourselves and that's how it's done? Or what is that about? It creates brain differentiation between the part of ourself that can have compassion for ourselves and the part of ourselves that's struggling with shame or anger or grief or fear. They're two different parts of the brain. And so that when you start to talk to yourself, then you're stepping into one of these rings, expanding rings of care. You're stepping a, a ring larger than the part that's in pain. And it creates clarity inside the brain. That's the ultimate reason why I started using my nickname, Allie, instead of Allison. Oh. Because Allie is what my eldest sister has called me. My family also and really close friends also call me Al. But Allie is what my eldest sister always called me. So I associate it with loving kindness. It's what I've always called myself privately. And so I wanted to invite the world to be in that closer, more intimate, and hopefully kinder relationship with me. Because it feels, I love that name, but it feels more formal. It feels more distant. So I think that is interesting because I've always done that too, is 
at least in good moments, called myself by my affectionate nickname. Oh, that's nice. It brings warmth. Yeah. I mean, I can call myself other stuff too. <laughs> but at least that, I know I'm in a good way when I'm calling myself Sally for sure. <laughs> so I don't know how much more time you have, but I just wanted to ask a few more questions. If you want to give any examples from your book and from your experience personally or professionally about other resonant language you use to help ourselves heal, to help ourselves have better relationships with others and how to ultimately help this planet. Right. I mean, working with contracts is quite a lovely thing and a wonderful way to be in a language relationship with ourselves. And then, you know, reaching for our deeper needs is kind of the discipline and practice of nonviolent communication. And that's a wonderful way to be with ourselves. I created a graph of nine different things, that ways that we can use language that light up the relational hemisphere, the right hemisphere, the relational system of the brain. Looking at research that shows us what kinds of language light up the right hemisphere, because the left hemisphere is the main language center. Left hemisphere is largely run by dopamine. Left hemisphere is hugely connected with the seeking circuit and getting things done. And the right hemisphere is where the care circuit and the alarmed aloneness, the panic grief circuit live, as well as much of most of the other circuits. So how do we stimulate with our language? Because language is like neurotransmitters that travel mm-hmm. between two different, like as if each of us were neurons, you know, I mean, in the fractal of being the earth and our brains and ourselves and what are the forms of communication? Like trees, you know, they send each other chemical signals through the air and through their roots in the earth. It's very cool. And humans use words mostly and nonverbals. And so what are we sending to others and what are we sending to ourselves in the way that we communicate? If we're communicating with ourselves with bitterness or contempt, then we're using the predatory aggression of the seeking circuit to try to take care of ourselves. And the nine forms of language, let's see if I can remember them just off the bat, if we talk about our body sensations, because the right hemisphere is so wired in, the relational brain and body are connected, they're here. Our relational body is our relational brain. How do we awaken it? We awaken it with talking about body sensations, talking about feelings, and talking about needs, using metaphors to begin to, you know, wonder about each other. Like, as I think about some of the things that you were saying, I have a very strong image of the night sky and of the distance between stars and that sort of complex radiant light that travels. And so then I would say, is it anything like that when you're thinking about these things, Allie? And you would then get to respond and say, well, no, it's actually more like the ocean, you know, or something like that. And I go, oh, the ocean. And it allows us to come closer to each other, the questions. The whole idea of questions and warm curiosity and interest in each other, do I understand you, is the essence of resonance. Poetry, the poetic visual, very similar to metaphor, but also we can quote poetry with each other and be quite lovely. Poetry lights up the right hemisphere. Swear words, if we're not using them. Yeah, let's talk about swear words. (laughs) I swear a lot. And I have some judgment about that and a lot of enjoyment too. What the hell? What what's about swear words? I just keep popping up, right? It just like one of my favorite pieces of research that I learned last year was that as soon as you teach chimpanzees sign language for poop, yeah, they start to use it as a swear word. They do the the symbol for poop to swear. They, Wait, how does they know it's used in a derogatory or kind of naughty way? How do the scientists know? I that know. How do they know that they're doing it? Because no, how do they know it's being used in a kind of mischievous way or in a... Because they're not using it to talk about poop. You know how the monkeys will throw poop at each other. They'll make the sign of poop at each other when they're angry. They're throwing it metaphorically. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I got to learn that sign. Uh, yeah, I love that. So It's I not love- my favorite choice of swear word, though. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Yeah, so what about, do you have any interesting tidbits about using the word fuck or shit or, well, shit, poop, same thing. But what about fuck? It's got such a resonance to it. 
Yeah, lots of different languages have different things that are the most powerful swear words. In English, if we put together sacred words and profane words, then it's particularly powerful, like holy fuck. Mm. <laughs> I do like that. <laughs> you like or Jesus tits. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that one. <laughs> oh, my lexicon's expanding as we speak. Yeah, so if you put together words that have to do with God, and especially the old Anglo-Saxon words, and for body connections, sexual connections, then these are the most powerful words in English. And when people use them, then they decrease pain and increase effort. So if you're trying to get something done and it's hard and you say, fuck, then you're actually giving yourself more energy and more persistence to be able to manage difficult things. If you say fuck every other word, then you don't get any benefit from fuck you. Sparingly or semi-sparingly. Yeah, Yeah, but people who swear are perceived as being more intelligent. I've heard that. Isn't that interesting? But what it does, yeah, it lights up the right hemisphere and it gives people a sense of resonance. Now, some people have traumatic associations with swear words. And if you learn that about your friend, then you just wouldn't say fuck to them. I don't think I got through all of that. There's impossible dreams and humor, making each other laugh, not with sarcasm. Yeah, so that's a pretty complete list. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Let's put in the show notes, if you wouldn't mind. You must have an article or a whole book, actually. Yes, yes. About about these nine ways of being more resonant. I want to ask just a few more questions, if I may. So... Somebody, a dear friend of mine recently said, wait a minute, they're discovering that the whole concept of the right-left brain is actually erroneous and that science is starting to be debunked and all this. What do you say to that? Well, you're right now in the country where Ian McGilchrist lives and he's the most coherently organized person who talks about the hemispheric research. The other shepherds just keeps talking about it in the episode three. Yep. And then... The other fellow who does a lot of talking about this research is Alan Shore. And so if anybody gets interested in the reams of research into lateralization, then they can take a look at the footnotes or the references for Ian McIlchrist and for, and for Alan Shore. Just amazing research. Things like little babies. Of course, you have left-handed and right-handed. But statistically speaking, babies use their left hand right hemisphere for relational gestures preverbally, mm. and use their right hand, left hemisphere, for instrumental gestures. There's reams of research. Now, what went wrong was that people said that people were left hemisphere, right hemisphere people, and that creativity was only the right hemisphere, and all that mm. stuff. There's kind of this, there was the Nobel Prize or something. The left brain got a hold of that whole. Yeah, and it was reductive. Yeah. Yes. And so then it became like something debunked because it was too reductive and it didn't uh, hold yeah. the complexity of the brain. But there's so many differences between left and right hemisphere. They look at the world in very different ways. The neural construction is different. The number of neurons that are involved in a thought is different. The neurotransmitters are different. Left hemisphere's dominant neurotransmitter is dopamine, as we said before. Right hemisphere's dominant neural neurotransmitter is noradrenaline or adrenaline. It loves discovery. It loves newness. The left hemisphere is very good at routine. So there's a lot of really interesting lateralization research that points toward the truth of Michael Kristen Shore's reams of work, which have have such thick volumes. Okay, so we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still plenty of differences between, obviously, the right and the left brain. Yeah, I tend to say instrumental brain and relational brain because then it doesn't imply that they're just stuck in one hemisphere. Yeah. And of course, the corpus callosum is there in order to mix and match and move. And we are all unique and we're going to use different aspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Have to ask you about the disgust circuit. It's just such a fun word in and of itself. And you love the value of disgust. So will you tell us about the magic of disgust? Yeah. So from very early age in North America, at any rate, children are really discouraged from showing disgust. It's considered to be a harmful emotion that's impolite and uncivil. But 
what disgust is actually doing is it's giving us a sense of our own internal nose. So it gives us a sense of what our actual lived boundaries are. And the more that we had to obliterate our own disgust circuit, the more we had to erase our own nose in relationship with the people who were taking care of us, which can happen quite consistently with parents who are very punitive or strict or demanding, but it can also happen with sexual abuse where little kids have to let go of their no or groomed out of having a no in order to satisfy the needs of the adults that they have to keep happy for whatever reason. They have to stay in relationship with for whatever reason. Sometimes that reason is because they love their parent. Sometimes that reason is because the person who's hurting them has told them that they'll hurt or kill people that they love. There can be so many reasons and ways that this can happen. But a child will often lose their nose when they're little. And the reclamation of the of healthy disgust allows people to begin to know all kinds of things, to say no to food, to know when they're full, to know what kind of food they like, to know what kind of art they like, to know whether they want to go for a walk with a friend, to know whether they've taken on too much work, to be able to say, nope, it's time for me to go home now, or I'm not going to work on this anymore tonight, or I'm done playing video games for now. It's just like all of our capacity to know ourselves and our limits and our boundaries and our loves and what we have the energy for comes from a close connection with this circuit. So the reclamation of this circuit I consider to be really fundamental for healing. Love it. I love how K-N-O-W and N-O are said the same way and are at best are inextricably related. Yeah. And that circuit is working in its healthy way. That's awesome. Okay, two last questions. How do you define embodiment? Oh, it's like an ongoing infinity process, you know, because we have to do so much reclamation from colonization to be able to really get into the body and into the earth. We really have to do it over years, I think, because, I mean, the way we're touched when we're babies begins the disembodiment experience. Every instrumental touch is non-relational, takes us farther and farther away from embodiment. Embodiment is the process by which we step into fully inhabiting all of ourselves. What is your view of how colonialization directly affects our capacity for embodiment now? Well, I think we are the earth. You know, I mean, in terms of point and line, we are each a body, but we are also the line of the connection with the earth. And so colonization brings a story of everybody being a dot, a point instead of a line. And the only lines that get drawn are tribal rather than like they're horizontal lines, Mm. groups of affiliation instead of this deep line that goes between our bodies and the earth. For me, the original wound of colonization was the removal of people from the land. Mm. There's this wonderful document that was created at the same time as the Magna Carta called the Charter of the Forest. Are you familiar with it? I love this document. It was a document that declared that everyone had the right to use the king's forest to gather mushrooms, to gather firewood, to be able to hunt. It was like the land belongs to everybody. And then with industrialization and with, you know, the creation of more and more centers of power held within different people, what we see is that is this loss of connection between a person and the land. And when we lose connection with the land, we lose connection with the body. And when we lose connection with the body, we lose connection with the land. And when we think that somebody is better than somebody else, we lose connection with the body. And when we think that we can punish somebody else, then we lose connection with the body. And it's just stone into every cell of our culture, this disembodiment and disconnection. If you have a body mission, what is it? If I have a body mission, it is, yeah, I want 2,000 years to change the world. My body mission is inviting everybody to let go of their spider webs and to create the neural connections of resonance that 
people be kind to each other. That's my body mission. Love it. The body of kindness. So last question, and then I really will let you go, Sarah. What do you enjoy or like best about being a body? So one of the circuits that we haven't talked about is the sexuality circuit. Yeah. And that is where emergence happens. That's where we become ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're asexual or so sexually active. That's not the point. The point is, what is this body here to do? What does it want? And what does it do when it's turned? As we begin to dissolve the spider webs that are holding us and we get these flashes of just like being pure sexuality, just like radiant, you know, radiant fucking power and chaos, chaos and beauty and power radiating out of me. That's what I like most about being a body. Yeah, right on. Love it. Love it. Sarah, you're magnificent. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you, Allie. You too. Loved it. And I look forward to the next time, wherever that may be. Me too. Thank you so, so much for being here with me. So much love to you. Thanks so much for sticking around till the end. If you enjoyed this episode, please give that like button a little click. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and hit that notification bell. I've got a bunch of fascinating guests lined up with trailblazing experts in the field that I'm really excited to share with you. I'm eager to hear from you too, so don't be shy. Drop a comment below. Share your thoughts, suggestions, or just say hi. Your insights on this episode mean the world to me. So go ahead, spread some love, like, subscribe, and share your thoughts below. Your support keeps this channel going strong, and I'm genuinely grateful for each and every one of you. Till next time, stay brilliant. Hey, brilliant bodies, one last thing before we wrap up. Sarah has so kindly offered an exclusive gift to you. Nearly 75% off her eight-week Introduction to Resonant Language online self-study course. It's already on a two-for-one promo, too, so you can sign up with a friend. Just use the coupon code BODYBRILLIANCE35 at checkout. After you make your order, add a note in the checkout box or shoot an email to help at sarahpeyton.com. Tell her your friend's email and name and you're all set for an incredible journey together. You can find the details in the show notes below. And have fun resonating! I hope you found this episode inspiring. If you'd like to learn more about the many ways I'm encouraging and guiding the wider world to reclaim the brilliance of the body, please visit my website at www.alimezey.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next episode and beyond, reclaim your brilliant body. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Ali Mazay. Thanks to Florence Popoff for additional editing and my social media management, and to Blair, Mr. One Man Band Wilson, for my theme music. <laughs>